Hey, what's up everyone? Welcome in. Welcome to episode 69 of WFS, The Will Ford Show. Beautiful day on this June 4th. Ready to talk some sports. NBA Finals, NFL offseason. I mean, I love this time of year and especially... You know, after the NBA Finals, when that NBA free agency stuff kicks up, that is going to be wild. We're going to talk some NFL or NFL NBA free agency today, some NBA Finals. Um, but to start off the show, we're gonna we're gonna start off with some NFL offseason. We'll get into some NBA later on in the show. Um, the Browns, they're they're a team right now that's got a lot of hype surrounding them. Uh, just with the addition of OBJ, you know, Baker's entering his second year. They've added some pieces on defense. Um, Jarvis Landry, they added Kareem Hunt. Like, there's just, just a lot of hype surrounding this team and how talented they are. A lot of expectations come with being um, that highly touted. Um, so it's going to be a really interesting year. That's probably the only virtual guarantee, one of the, one of the only virtual guarantees about the NFL season is that the Browns are going to be a noisy team, going to be an attractive team to watch. It's going to be interesting to just follow them to week to week, see what, uh, see how Baker Mayfield grows and develops, um, his connection with OBJ and, and Juice Landry and that offense, how Kareem Hunt's going to be integrated into the offense after his eight-game suspension. It's going to be really interesting to watch. I think they're a really exciting team. They're the team I'm most excited, aside from the Cowboys, because I'm a Cowboys fan. Outside of that, because I'm always excited every year for, for football season, they're the most exciting team, I think, to just look forward to watching this year, not even not only on the field, but off the field. I, I've said this before. I think I think uh, the, the hard knocks, I think they were a little, they were a year too late on having the Browns be on hard knocks because this year would have been a tremendous year for it having just Odell Beckham Jr. alone. Um, that would have made that 10 times more entertaining. Um, but some news that there's some, like I said, there's always some hype around the Browns. And right now, Duke Johnson, who's there, right now they're back up running back to Nick Chubb because Kareem Hunt's, obviously suspended right now. Um, Duke Johnson, he's kind of like a, a change of pace back, a great receiving back, probably the best receiving back in football. He wants a trade. He, he wants to be traded because he's, you know, obviously he's a really good running back. He's a great runner of the football, can change the pace, can catch the football and run. Runs really good routes too as a running back. He can start for probably 18 to 20 teams in this league. So I don't blame him for, for wanting a trade uh, out of Cleveland. Um, but, you know, he wants out. And he, he talked about, you know, what's best for him and also what's best for the Browns. Like if John Dorsey wanted to trade him to bring in another piece to Cleveland that would be better for their team, um, then... Uh, you know, he was all for it. And, you know, with that trade request, people were asking Baker Mayfield about it and, you know, how he feels about the trade request and is it awkward or does it kind of deter from, you know, what the goal of the team is, getting better during the offseason? Is, is it a distraction? Um, and, and how does it just go over with everybody on the team? And uh, this is what Baker Mayfield had to say about it. Awkward. Self-inflicted. It is what it is. It's not awkward for anybody else in this building. How do you support it? Do you support him as a teammate then while he's here? Like, how do you go about doing that? He's got to do his job. He said he's a professional. I hope he does his job. Pretty interesting. I know it's not TV. I wish this was TV. Maybe one day if I make it big in the media world. But um, if you watch that video and you can just search it on Twitter. Like I pulled that off Twitter. If you just search that, then, and you watch it, and you just kind of see how Baker talks, like his facial expressions with his words, because you can't really tell a lot with words without the, 
the imagery behind it, you can imagine, but um, kind of seemed a little, I don't know, not, I don't know what the word is, but just kind of like Baker was kind of mad about it. Kind of like it was a distraction. Like, like if you, like you don't want to be here, why don't you want to be a part of this team? Why don't you, why don't you want to play with me? Kind of seemed a little bothered and a little angry. You can't really tell in his tone of voice, but if you just look at the way he speaks, look it up. I mean, it's a, it's a great response. I love the response. I think it's a great answer, but just the facial expression behind the answer kind of is a little more telling about the the feeling that this talk has in the locker room and on the team. I don't blame Duke Johnson for doing it. I think it is it's obviously self-inflicted. He wants to go play somewhere. And at the same time, he's still with the Browns and he's got a job to do and that's be the best he can be for the Cleveland Browns. And you know, it's a balance and I that's why I love Baker Mayfield's answer. Uh, I think that's a tremendous answer, but if you watch the video, there seems to be uh, I was watching the herd, Colin Cowherd quoted it as uh, like there's tension. Uh, you can just sense tension in the way Baker talks about it. Um, very interesting. Duke Johnson can probably start for about 18 to 20 teams in this league. There's not, there's not that many like superstar running backs. Like I can just name maybe, maybe 10 or 12 guys uh, that are actually starting starting running backs that are that are superstars. You have Zeke, Le'Veon Bell, Alvin Kamara, uh, David Johnson. I love, but he's fallen off the last couple of years. He's had injuries. Um, Todd Gurley, although he's not played well over the last half season or so, uh, but he's a star running back. Just guys like that. I mean, and. After, you know, those kind of guys, that first and second tier, that's where Duke Johnson falls. He's right there, kind of that borderline second tier where he can be a starting quality back. Um, and he's a great receiver out of the backfield. He can, I bet, he can withstand a lot of volume, running the football, catching it, get a lot of touches. And I think he can be very valuable for a team who is in need of that all-around back. Um, speaking of teams in need, um, Gerald McCoy made his free agent decision and a couple teams felt they needed him uh, as an addition to their defensive front, their defensive line. Uh, he talked to three teams. I think he was talking to four, but he narrowed it down to three teams. Um, the Carolina Panthers, Cleveland Browns. Um, boy, wouldn't have been great for McCoy to land with the Browns. Spoiler alert, it's not the Browns and uh, the Baltimore Ravens. And he ended up signing with the Panthers on a one-year, $8 million deal. He actually turned down more guaranteed money with the Ravens, I believe. I think I think he left Baltimore expecting to sign with the Ravens, but he still had that one last visit with the Panthers, and the Panthers just wowed him. Plus, Signing with the Panthers, it gives Gerald McCoy an opportunity to play against his former team twice a year, the Tampa Bay Bucks, and who it feels like them releasing him was kind of personal because they they cut him, which gives them some short term cap relief, and then they signed Ndamukong Sue to a one year deal worth, I think eight million dollars as well, or maybe it was ten million, and they gave Sue McCoy's old number ninety three. So it seems kind of personal there, and Carolina can offer him something that the Browns and the Ravens can't, which is a chance to kind of stick it to the Bucks um, when the season starts, when they play uh, two times next year. So I think that's a big addition to, to their defensive front. He's obviously one of the better defensive tackles in the league, albeit aging, but he's still really good. I'm surprised a lot more teams didn't want to go after him, especially – at his age, he was only going to be looking for a one-year deal anyways, so it's not really going to hurt you salary cap-wise. If you've got you know, $10 million, $12 million, you could burn the majority of that on just 
a player for a year, a really good player, and then you're not locked in in for the future. I th- I, th- I think it would be perfect for any team who wanted or was in need of some defensive line help. Surprise, only three or four teams went after him. Uh, but the the Panthers definitely got a, a, a massive upgrade on the defensive line, um, albeit for maybe only a year, but still. Now this, this next thing I'm going to talk about, this is something that I love. And I don't love a lot of things about Roger Goodell, but what he's he announced, what he's made public recently, I think is absolutely genius. And I've been thinking of this for years. Uh, preseason just, it's too long. And Roger Goodell thinks four, a four-game preseason is totally unnecessary. And in fact, a lot of NFL owners are pushing for an 18-game NFL regular season. So instead of having your six, four preseason game and 16 regular season game, then you obviously have the playoffs. Um, if Roger Goodell wants to shorten the preseason, I would shorten it by two games. You make it a two-week preseason, plus two teams would have a third week if you continue to do the Hall of Fame game in Canton every year, which that's a huge moneymaker for the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I would definitely do that. That's entertainment right there. Granted, not all the great players are going to play. It's still football, and two teams can have three weeks. Like Because two teams now have five weeks of uh, preseason every year because of it. Um, so I think you shorten it to two games, a two-game preseason, because it doesn't need to be that long. You can... Uh, limit the risk of injury um, by having less games, especially injury to some of your starting caliber guys that play maybe the first series or two or maybe the whole first quarter of a preseason game. And then if teams really want to add two games on to the regular season, which I'm for it, I'm definitely for it. I could always do with more football in my life, more meaningful football because preseason is not really that meaningful. I'm fine with adding two weeks onto the regular season. Um, it just depends on whether players want that and if they're going to be properly compensated for it because their salaries are going to have to be adjusted because players right now, they're getting paid for 16-week seasons. And then uh, they get bonuses and incentives for making the playoffs and reaching milestones and whatever. You add, you add two two games on... If you do the math on a contract and figure out the math per game, you've got to, number one, you've got to raise the cap. And number two, you've got to adjust those salaries by that percentage for the two games and figure it out. Because uh, players aren't going to want to pay or play two more regular season games, risk their lives essentially, and their career, their careers and their lives. Their lives are obviously more important. But players aren't going to want to do that if they're not going to get paid for it. So I think that's something that the NFL Players Association is going to have to work out with the players. Uh, they're going to they're going to have to figure that out and figure out just the semantics behind it. Um, but I'm all for it. I am definitely, if, if they don't add two games onto the regular season, which that's not the biggest deal in the world, baby steps, we don't, we don't need that right now. But I'm definitely all for it just taking the first two weeks off of preseason and just having a two-week preseason. Well, it would be three weeks for the Hall of Fame game, but just having a three-week preseason and 30 teams have two preseason games, I think that is far better. It keeps teams a lot healthier going into the season. Um, and I think that's an incredible idea by Roger Goodell, and it's something that I've been thinking of for a while now just like why is the preseason so long why do we have to have four weeks of preseason where really it's just getting reps for some of your second and third team guys and that's not always necessary so four games i think is a is a little much a two-game preseason i think that would be perfect and i think it's a fantastic idea by roger goodell so moving into the nba um, 
the NBA Finals is all tied at one apiece. And the Warriors took game two. And they won by five. And we'll get into more of the game later. But I want to kind of go off of uh, game. I want to talk about game one a little bit because I didn't have a chance to. Well, I had a chance and I just, I just didn't get an episode done. Or at least maybe just record a short video or something on Twitter and give my thoughts on game one, which need to be a better about creating more content. But that's besides the fact. Um, besides the point, I mean. Um, so after game one, obviously the Raptors, it's their first NBA Finals game in franchise history. They're hyped. You know Drake's hyped. And the, the Warriors have been to their fifth straight finals. They had two weeks off because they swept the Portland Trailblazers and the Raptors went to six with the Bucks. I think we all had a feeling going into that, that game. Number one, it's at home, which is different for the Warriors. The Warriors weren't going to... This would be the first time in five years that the Warriors would be starting an NBA Finals on the road. And also it would be different... In another way, too, they would be without Kevin Durant, which they had him the previous two seasons. So there's differences there. It's kind of different for the Warriors. Kind of, although they've been there and done that and they've done it all, this is still a bit of a change and it can kind of give you a little bit of a culture shock, which it kind of did in, in game one. Toronto was just absolutely ready. Everybody was balling out. Kawhi only had 23, but the, he was getting doubled all night and he was really for the most part he he wasn't too bad given that he was doubled a lot, had 23 points. Pascal Siakam had 32 points, shot 80 plus percent from the floor, 14 of 17 from the field. Um Marcus Saul had his best game as a Raptor, 20 points. He had 14 in the first half. Um Kyle Lowry was was good. Danny Green was hitting shots. Fred Van Vliet, who is underrated, by the way, an underrated bench player, starting quality guy on a lot of teams. He was really good. And the Warriors kind of came out flat. Steph Curry was sensational. He had 33 or 32, whatever it was. But, you know, the Raptors... They had all these guys chipping in, all these guys having career nights, all these guys playing really well. The crowd behind them, the crowd hyped. And the Warriors weren't at their best. Nobody was really effective. And they were still in the game until the last couple minutes. <laughs> and after that game, people were probably thinking, oh, Raptors in six, Raptors in five. Like, this is, like, the Raptors got the Warriors this year. The Warriors aren't the Warriors anymore. The Warriors were, they kept it close the whole game. And they they weren't even good. Steph Curry was the only one who played excellent. Klay Thompson, I believe, had 20 or 21. He was quietly okay. Draymond had a triple-double, but he wasn't really, it wasn't that great. Boogie didn't play. KD was out, like, not a lot of help for Steph Curry in that game. And they were still in it at the end. And so what I was going to do, what I was going to tell people is just pump the brakes. Because first of all, Steph Curry was the only one that played well. No one else showed up for the Warriors. And everyone showed up for the Raptors. It took everybody showing up for the Raptors and everybody playing well for you to barely beat the Golden State Warriors. I think they won by nine. It took everything you had plus a bad night from the Warriors collectively to win by nine points. I would have told you that that's the only way the Raptors can win this series is if for all potentially seven games the Raptors would have to play excellent across the board and the Warriors would have to be flat for them to have a chance to win the series. Otherwise, there's no way they're winning this. 
the Warriors are just too good of a team. And if both Steph and Clay went off, it would be destruction, a complete dismantling of the Raptors. So I would have told everybody to pump the brakes on this game one win. Yes, you're protecting home court and you're you're up on the Warriors, and a win is a win, and that's huge in the finals. But the Warriors are still gonna win this series. And after game two, now we'll dive into game two after I give a little bit of analysis of game one. Game two, everyone was hurt for the Warriors. KD is still out. And I don't think he's going to play this series at all. Although they, they said they're going to bring him back for game four. I don't think they're going to as long as they're winning. Clay Thompson, Clay Thompson hurt his hamstring while shooting a three. He didn't finish the game. He injured himself. He was trying to draw a foul. And he tried to like throw his legs out in the air and landed in an awkward position. And didn't even make contact with the defender. And he was like in a split and he pulled his hamstring. That's on him. Stupid trying to draw fouls. Just shoot the shot. But he was out. Kevon Looney fractured part of his collarbone. Steph Curry was sick. Uh, Boogie Cousins is still not 100%, although he played really well in Game 2. Had a double-double with six assists. He was effective, but he's still not himself. Um, All these things working against the Warriors. Andre Iguodala wasn't... Complete, he's not completely healthy either. And, you know, the Raptors, they couldn't take advantage of that. They could not take advantage of that. And what's incredible is the Warriors in the final eight minutes, or actually the final five minutes of the game, they didn't score a single point until seven seconds left when Andre Iguodala hit the dagger three. They didn't score a point. The problem with that is, the Raptors didn't capitalize. They didn't they didn't score points. And that's like how are you gonna stop the Warriors, stifle them for five straight minutes? You hold Steph Curry to no shot attempts. Like he didn't even shoot a shot. No, no free throw shots, nothing. Steph Curry was 0 for 0 in the final eight minutes of the game that he played. And the Warriors didn't score for the final five minutes of the game until the Last seven seconds, and the Raptors couldn't pull it out. All these injuries, Kevon Looney, Clay Thompson, Iggy, Steph is, is sick. All these things working against the Warriors, against this great dynasty, this aging dynasty. And the Raptors couldn't win. They folded under the pressure. Tell me that the Raptors are going to win this series. I don't think they will. I don't think they will. It, you're going into game three now. You're going back to Oracle Arena. You're giving the Warriors a couple of days to get these guys healthy. Clay is he's questionable for game three, but he's probably going to play. KD is out. He's not playing. Kevon Looney's obviously done for the series. Steph, he's still sick. Boogie's still working back from injury. And they're still going to beat the Raptors in game three, probably. The only way. The, the Raptors win game three is if Clay does not play. Now, if I were the Warriors, I would suit up Clay Thompson and have him sit. Don't don't start him. Don't play him unless you absolutely need him because he can still be effective in catch and shoot. The only problem is defensively, he's going to be a liability. He's their best defender, but he, a hamstring is not going to fix itself overnight. He's not going to be able to keep up with Kawhi or Van Fleet or Kyle Lowry or any of these guys he's not going to be able to do it so that's the only way that the Raptors are going to be able to win game 3 and possibly any other games is if Clay Thompson is hurt just just think about this like if we flipped these injuries and we gave all these injuries to the Raptors which Kawhi is actually banged up but let's just assume let's just flip the script here for a minute like imagine that Kyle Lowry hurt his hamstring he's questionable for game three um, Kawhi Leonard's out uh, Van Vliet is sick and you know Serge Ibaka or Marcus Saul has that fractured collarbone and they're out this wouldn't even be a series if the Raptors had these injuries this wouldn't be a series 
the Warriors would win in four and have their fourth championship in five years and have a three-peat. That's what, that's what the story will be. A sweep. But the Warriors have all these injuries, and they're still managing to keep games close, and they came out on, on top in game two. It's honestly incredible. The only thing that the Raptors are waiting on is whether or not that MRI comes up clean for Clay Thompson. And right now he's questionable to play, and they better hope he doesn't play, because if he does play, even a 70% Clay Thompson, that's good enough. That's good enough, and Steph Curry's been balling out lately. Um, that'll be enough to finish off these Raptors. I don't think the Raptors have much of a chance to win this series unless... These injuries just continue to mount and players can't play. It's the only way the Raptors have a chance to win this series. And Kawhi's hurt, too. He's got some knee tendonitis, some quad issues. Things are it's it's working against the the Warriors. Like the Warriors have all these injuries. They're an aging dynasty. But they've been through all of this. And they're still winning. It's incredible. And I think... I think Steph Curry's going to be the finals MVP assuming they win the finals. But we can't undermine the impact of DeMarcus Boogie Cousins in Game 2. Who had a double-double. 11 points. Double-digit rebounds. 6 assists. He was a facilitator. He was... He brought a lot of energy to that team. And then we also can't underestimate the or undervalue the efforts of Andre Iguodala as, to, uh, as well. One of the most clutch playoff performers, I would say. Uh, he, he took a bad shot at the end of the shot clock in game two to close out the game, but it went in and that's going to be a shot that's going to be one of the highlights of his career for sure. Uh, but prediction for Game 3, if Clay plays and he's at 60-70%, I think the Warriors win. It'll be a close game. Warriors win. They'll take a 2-1 lead heading into Game 4 where KD may or may not return. We'll see. Um, but if you think about this, this season has been, and I want to shift to this, this season has been a long time coming for the Raptors. They've been hindered by the great LeBron James for the past like eight or nine years where they've had some great, these, these Raptor, Raptors teams, especially over the last three or four years, have had some great teams. And they get to the East Semis or the Eastern Conference Finals and they have to go up against LeBron and they, and they can't beat LeBron. And those were the teams with Lowry and DeRozan and... Valanchunas and you know and Van Vliet was a younger a younger player like it was those teams great teams and if LeBron's not in that conference probably a, a championship level team a team that can get to the finals on a, from year to year DeMar DeRozan gets traded for Kawhi Leonard and LeBron leaves, so it kind of goes hand in hand, but LeBron leaves and Kawhi's in Toronto and they go to the finals. And it seems like everything is coming together for the Raptors. They're probably not going to win the series. They're not going to win the championship, but they're going to be set up if Kawhi stays for a great next couple of years to make the finals and compete for a championship every year. And DeMar DeRozan... He had a great quote um, on this. He was kind of the the one that kind of set the the foundation for what the Toronto Raptors are. He is one of the one of, if not the greatest Toronto Raptors player in history. What he did for this franchise, how he built it, how they how he built this team to be a great team. You know, it's it's all on him. And. He, he talked about their success this season and how, you know, it's different without him there. 
And he's, he, he called himself a, quote, sacrificial lamb for the Toronto Raptors' success. Basically, in order for them to get to where they needed to be, he had to build the foundation and then he had to sacrifice himself. He had to be sacrificed in order for the Raptors to make that next step and get to the finals. I thought that was a great quote. It's sad because DeMar is obviously well-loved in in Toronto. It's sad, but ultimately it's it's kind of true. I mean, it is true. He 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 built the Raptors to what it, what they are right now. And it took him getting traded away. For them to to make the finals. It's not that he was a hindrance. They just needed that one last push. They just needed that that player that was just a little bit better. And it's sad, but it's true. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. The sacrificial lamb for the Toronto Raptors' success is DeMar DeRozan. Um, so... I want to shift to this last last topic of some NBA uh, NBA news, and this was really it's not surprising because nothing that comes out of the LA Lakers organization surprises me anymore. With you know all the bad PR with the front office and everything that's going on, but kind of a huge story that broke today that's not really getting talked about that much. I saw the notification for it, but I really, people have touched on it, but haven't really like just, just hammered this. And it's probably going to be talked about over the, the course of the rest of the week. LeBron James has supposedly reportedly threatened to make a, threatened to demand a trade from the Lakers. If the organization whiffs this off season, either via the trade market or you know, in free agency, whether they fail to to make a move on a guy like Anthony Davis or bring in a guy like Brad Beal or sign a guy like Kyrie or one of the big fish, Kawhi, somebody. If they fail to do that, LeBron's going to threaten a trade request from the Lakers and get out of there. I'm not sure if I totally buy into this because... It's, this is a lot. So, LeBron came to the Lakers for one reason. I think there was, there was only one reason why he came to L.A. It was for his, his set his kids up to live, in, to live in L.A., move his family to L.A., and he wanted to move here for all the Hollywood stuff, all the, the L.A., glitz, glamour, bright lights, big city, Hollywood. He, that's what he wanted to, to pursue. He he wasn't promising championships to this organization. He wasn't doing the not five, not six, not seven, which did come back to bite him in Miami. He didn't promise any of that. If you actually noticed, and I actually thought of this, like I thought of this too, I was expecting some presser when they first brought in LeBron James. He never had a press conference to talk about what he expects for this team and what he wants to do. Um, and that just kind of proves that he what he's not all about championships. Yeah, he didn't. He, obviously, he wants to win a championship, but he didn't come. He didn't come here for that because he feels that his legacy has already been. It's already been solidified with what he's done in Cleveland and how he brought them back against the Warriors. And. He's not all about championships anymore. He's not all about winning anymore. He's just all about the L.A. Hollywood stuff. And it's kind of sad because that doesn't make him the greatest player of all time. And this does hurt his legacy, in my my opinion. It just diminishes everything he's done. Because when we hear the name LeBron James, we think of the 13 consecutive playoff appearances. We think of the eight or nine straight NBA Finals appearances. And 
all this talk of him trying to acquire another star and not sticking up for his teammates and not being there to hold down the fort when everything was seemingly being blown away with all this PR front office crap. He wasn't there for it. And he's kind of just been a bot and almost like an innocent bystander uh, while he's been a part of the LA Lakers organization. It just seems like he doesn't care about the basketball side of things that much anymore. That's why I don't buy into this trade request because he's not going to uproot his family and leave, unless it's the Clippers. He's not going to uproot, uproot his family, uproot all this Hollywood LA stuff, executive producing, you know, his his million dollar mile race and the the racing show and all these other shows, the shop. He's not going to sacrifice all that because I don't think he's all about championships anymore. He never made a promise to the LA Lakers organization and to the LA Lakers fans that he would bring a championship here. He may have said it on occasion, but like he never actually came out and had a presser and talked about it. I don't think he's... This is... This reminds me of Kobe Bryant um, during that stint between... It was post-Shaq and pre-Pau Gasol where the Lakers weren't very good. He threatened to trade and the Lakers did what he wanted and they brought in Pau Gasol. The main difference, though is that Kobe Bryant was in his prime. I mean, Kobe Bryant was a baller. 81 points. He had the the 60-plus point games. He was balling. He was in his prime, best player in the world. The difference with LeBron is LeBron's 34 years old. He's exiting his prime. He's on the way out of his prime. Still really good. Still a top three, top two player, but he's exiting his prime. He's not going to get what he wants. They're not going to grant that. Like, Obviously, the Lakers want to be good and they want to try to bring in free agents. But they're not going to trade LeBron away. And I don't think LeBron's not going to get what he wants if they, if the Lakers don't or fail to bring in a free agent or another superstar. He's not going to get what he wants. He's not going to get that trade because he's exiting his prime. It's not like they have prime years to, and they have all the time in the world to figure this out. Like The Lakers need to figure this out now. They can't just ship LeBron out because you can just kiss bye-bye to all the title hopes. And They've got a limited window, three more seasons left of Really good LeBron James. You've got to bring in another star or two to give him a chance to bring a, uh, bring a title to L.A. and kind of restore the image of the L.A. Lakers organization, which has been an embarrassment for the last probably five or six years. Just a nightmare in Los Angeles. Who, by the way... I had a notification on my phone just a few minutes ago. They just brought in Lionel Hollins to be an assistant on their coaching staff. So Frank Vogel is the coach. Jason Kidd is the NBA's highest paid assistant now on their staff. And they just brought in Lionel Hollins. It's a really good staff, if you ask me. That's a really good start to a staff. I'm not a huge Jason Kidd guy, but it's a really good staff. Um, I believe they still have Brian Shaw as well. If they still have him, that's a that's a really good staff. I like that. Um, but man, this, as a whole, this whole Laker stuff, it's just a mess. And I have no idea. I have no idea what to do with it. I don't know what to do. Um, but I want to close out the show um, with some tennis because I do love tennis. Um, and I really only want to talk about it, unless like there was major news, I love to talk about it during, you know, the, the majors. Um, right now it's the French Open. It's clay court season. And clay would be an amazing surface to play on just to slide around and all that. But anyways, um, if we're taking a look at the women's side first, um, 
half of the semifinal is set for both the men's and the women's, uh, but we're going to look at the women's side first. Um, this is a tournament that is no, it no longer has Serena Williams or like she was knocked out in the, I believe in the second or third round of the tournament, Naomi Osaka, the number one player in the world got knocked out. <clears throat> Excuse me. So she's gone. And that's huge for a lot of these up and coming players. A lot of, a lot of these players that, don't have a lot of championship experience to you know make their make their names for themselves and win a major the first semifinal it's going to be Marketa Vondrasova versus Johanna Conta and Conta is actually a really good player she was as high as number 6 in the world at one point she's from Britain i like her in that matchup um she makes a lot of mistakes Quite often, Vondrasova is a nice player as well. I do like Vondrasova a lot. We'll see how that shakes out. I haven't really been following the tournament as a whole. I haven't been watching match after match after match. I've been tuning in here and there. But I, I do like, um, I do like Conta in that match. Conta was coming off of injury a while back. She had a nice Wimbledon run uh, a couple years ago. Um, but yeah, so, and then the other side of things, we have the quarter, we have two quarterfinals that have to be played one today, I believe, or actually, no, they, they might be both tomorrow. Um, so one quarterfinal, we have Simona Halep taking on Amanda Anasimova. And we have Madison Keys taking on Ashley Barty. Ashley Barty has been on fire during the French Open. I love what she's been doing. I've been actually I've been following her a lot. Simona Halep. I'm not a huge Halep person. She freezes in big moments, and she's in my opinion she's just not great. She's good, not great. Um, but I do like Halep over Anna Samova. Um, Madison Keys versus Ashley Barty. I love Keys as well, the American, but Ashley Barty's just been on fire. I'm going. I'm rolling with Ashley Barty, and then I think Ashley Barty will beat Halep in the semifinal. If that's the semifinal, I'll take. I'm going to take Ashley Barty to win the whole thing, win the French Open, and beat either Vondrasova or Conta. I think it's going to be Conta, but we'll see. Vondrasova has been playing really well as well, so. We'll see how that goes. But Ashley Barty, I love what she's been doing. She's a really nice, really nice women's player who's been climbing the rankings. And uh, for looking at the men's side of things, one semifinal is set. Uh, and it's a, it's going to be a classic matchup. Just uh, You can probably guess if you follow tennis. Um, so we'll look at the quarters first because I want to go into the other side in a minute. Uh, the first quarterfinal is going to be Novak Djokovic versus Alexander Zverev, the number one seed versus the number four seed. That's going to be a really good matchup. Djokovic has been on fire, been on a tear the last, I don't know, the last like eight months, ten months. He's been just Carrying through majors. He won Wimbledon, the US, and the Australian. He's won three straight majors. He's just tearing it up right now. Zverev, he's in a semi or in a quarterfinal for one of the only times in his career. This is a big matchup for him. I just Djokovic is just playing on another level right now. I'm rolling with Djokovic to get into the to the semifinal. And then the other side, Dominic Team is taking on Karen Kachanov. Dominic Team might be the second best clay court player in this tournament. I'm rolling with Team. He is an excellent clay court player. He's beaten the doll on clay a couple times, and that's that's an achievement to say the least. Um, so I really like him over Kachanov. Djokovic versus Team. I gotta go with Team. 
as my prediction to make it to the final just because he's such a great clay court player and Djokovic's tear will will end um not end but he'll just have a break I guess <laughs> um so I like team and Djokovic in the semifinal and we'll take team to the final um and then the men's semifinal which is going to be played I think not tomorrow but on Thursday it's going to be Roger Federer versus Rafael Nadal and that's going to be an insane matchup granted these two players are older players they're not the, what the same as what they used to be um, but and that's going to be a classic matchup because they've had just amazing battles over the years. Obviously, the the 2008 Wimbledon Championships, that amazing five set match where Nadal took the first two st- uh, sets, Roger fired back, and um, like that was just an that was just an, an incredible matchup. I have, I'm honestly speechless when it comes to these two guys. Um. Like, I don't even remember the last the last time these two played on clay against each other, because Federer has sat out clay court season the last two years. Nadal's obviously won I think ten or eleven Roland Garros titles. I'm trying to find the last time that these these two played in the French Open, or maybe just. On clay in general. Um, so Rogers back in the semifinal round of the French Open for the first time since 2012. Um, Nadal's won Roland Garros 11 times and is 5-0 five, five against Federer and Roland Garros. Um, so obviously the the odds are in Nadal's favor, but this is going to be a great matchup. I think Federer's been on fire. Nadal's been on fire. Heck, everyone's on fire, in my opinion. You have to be on fire if you're getting this far in, in the French Open, but Nadal's obviously the better clay court player. Federer, he's kind of resurged after the last couple months. He's not been great. He's looking to get his 21st Grand Slam. Nadal's looking for his 12th Roland Garros title. This is going to be a classic matchup. Unfortunately, I'm a huge Fed fan. I love Fed. So unfortunately, I think he's going to lose just because Nadal is just another animal on clay. Nadal is probably going to advance to the the finals. I hope it's a really entertaining match, a five-setter. I, I really hope it's a good match. Um, and Nadal will probably take on Team. Team has beaten Nadal before, but Nadal and Roland Garros is almost unbeatable. I'm gonna take Nadal to win this thing again. He's just—he's the greatest clay court player of all time. Roger's the best grass court player of all time, and Djokovic is probably the best hard court player of all time. Three of the greatest players of all time in the same era. Two kind of exiting their prime, and Djokovic, who's heading that way as well um but tennis right now is just incredible especially for especially women's tennis i'm really excited about women's tennis especially with naomi osaka um and just some of these up-and-coming uh ladies um i'm just really excited about tennis as a whole great stuff gonna be looking forward to watching it the rest of this week to see who claims the Roland Garros title for the women's and men's side. Go Roger. So, But anyways, that's it for me for uh, for today. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter, at The Will Ford Show. Rate and review the show on iTunes. Like and comment on SoundCloud. I'm trying to bump those views back up. Follow my YouTube channel. Just search Will Ford or The Will Ford Show. should be able to find it. And... Uh, I'll also post a link to my YouTube channel on Twitter after I get the video uploaded. Good stuff, man. Love doing this. Good to see you guys. 
We'll see you guys soon in episode 70, the big 7-0. We'll see you guys then. It is WFS, the Will Ford Show.